Hello and welcome back to Kyle's Internal Monologue. Uh, this episode we're going to be discussing, for the very first time, something that is not Babylon 5 or just a random insert, like my uh, uh, my, my little interview with Claudia back in the day or the Stumptown thing. We're going to begin our journey now that we have finished Babylon 5 in its entirety, not counting spin-offs uh, and additional movies that I just didn't feel like doing because, well... Either they're just oh right in not really something I come to Babylon Live for, or in the case of Crusade, lots of potential, but you know ended before it could really get going, and so there's no way to judge it uh, outside of it has interesting ideas. So now we begin our journey through the Witcher saga, and of course it begins with the very first short story uh, submitted in 1986 to the Fantastica magazine by Andrzej Sapkowski or Sapkowski. I am not Polish. I'm currently learning Polish. I suck at pronunciation sometimes, a lot of the times when it comes to certain words. So you will hear many different pronunciations of his name because I suck at pronouncing it. And I apologize to both Andre himself and to you, the audience, for having to deal with that. Um, and it, it was submitted uh, at the behest of his sadly now late son, um, who encouraged his father to submit it. He was a accountant by trade. He has a finance degree. He's not a writer. Um, and he just had this idea. And it turned out to be incredibly successful. He won third place. Um, and, uh, from there it spawned more short stories and more short stories. And eventually he got a book deal and those short stories start leading up to the books. And then the books take off and they became a huge cultural touchstone for, uh, Poland in particular, but outside of Poland. And now we live in a world in which there have been comics of this series. There have been two TV shows, one from 2002 and one from Netflix in the current day that is still going on. There are uh, at least four games, uh, three with Geralt himself, one with a, uh, another character from the books called Queen Meave, um, set in the universe, and a trading card game set in the universe. It has grown to become a huge franchise, and that's not counting stuff that's not even just in English. There's a stage play musical stage play in Poland. There is a witcher school that you can go to in Poland uh, where you can learn and train to be a witcher. This is sort of a live-action live role-playing, which is pretty cool. Uh, so the witcher has grown a lot since this short story was submitted. And it has grown me as a person. And I want to get into that first before we get into the short story, because this short story is, while the progenitor of everything is, as a result of being that, mainly important, and most of its crux comes from the fact that it is the progenitor and not of its own devices. And we'll get into that in a bit. But I got into it a little bit last episode, but I only briefly touched upon it. I uh, was in university. I was in my final year. Actually, it goes back a little bit further than that. I'll get into that. So let's go there. So it was my second year of university. Around the same time, I discovered Babylon 5, coincidentally enough. I was looking for something to, you know, uh, cover that spring break, as I mentioned. And uh, one of the things suggested by a friend of mine who was living with me, Callum Crosby, a wonderful, wonderful person, um, and has been a good dear friend to me for God knows how many years at this point, um, is uh, he 
he recommended this game series he'd recently tried out uh, from this random Polish developer called CD Projekt Red. Uh, uh, it's called The Witcher. And he was like, try Witcher 3. Because this was, you know, this was late uh, 2015, early 2016. You know, this was, uh, you know, the time frame that, uh, you know, Witcher 3 had kind of entered the cultural landscape as becoming one of the biggest games of all time. Uh, and I was hearing a lot of stuff about this. And I didn't really know anything about this series at all. Um, I remember I had a friend who hadn't read the books uh, uh, but knew about them, and I remember there was this entire thing about this Triss and Yennefer characters, and who do you choose, and he was like, well, in the books, it's Yennefer, and, uh, and I didn't understand any of this at the time, <laughs> of course, now I completely understand, um, and I decided, okay, I'll give this game a sh shot. So I bought Witcher 1 on sale. It was on sale for one pound. I'm not giving you one pound, um, which is like two bucks in American dollars, if not less, uh, at least at the conversion rates of the time. Uh, and so I started playing Witcher 1, and I struggled with it. It had interesting ideas, but it suffered from really bad game design in certain areas, uh, mediocre voice acting, uh, clear translation issues, um, also the fact that it was showing its age, it was it came out in 2007, it was already 10 years old at that point, um, and I felt like I had entered something in between, like I had entered... I'd entered something that was in a franchise and I just had never heard of it before. And I've done that before. I'm a comic fan and that's how I tell people to approach comics. Just pick up the most recent issue, read it, and you'll pick up things in context clues. But with this, it felt like a more... Like, comics are soap operas. They never end. They have no beginning, middle, and end. They just keep going. And that's that's why picking up the most recent issue and picking up context clues is the only way to really get in. It's because otherwise you're going to waste an ass ton of time trying to go back to the very beginning, even then it's not going to be completely consistent. Um, so I felt like when I picked up these games, uh, th that game that I was entering a franchise midway through and I needed to go back to the beginning and I found out there was a book series. Uh, and at the time I was busy with this little known thing called Babylon five. I was currently watching it uh, and that was stealing up all my time. Uh, so I wasn't all that interested, and to be honest, the game had set a low standard for me for the the Witcher universe. Uh, there was this character called Triss, who I thought was manipulative and was a complete asshole. Turns out I was completely vindicated once I read the books, but that's neither here nor there. Uh, and I am sorry for any Triss fans out there, but I don't think highly of the character. Um, think she's well written, but boy, howdy, do I dislike her and what she tries to do. Um, so I just never really had a big interest. Next year comes third year, third year's wrapping up. I had some difficulties. I, um, uh, I had some issues with, uh, the romance side of my life. I won't get into it. Uh, you don't need to hear it. I don't need to relive it. Uh, let's just say there was some issues on that side of my life. And there was also the incurring pressures of I was, you know, this was my final year. This was my dissertation year. I was graduating. I was going to be out of university. I was going to begin my new life. Uh, I wasn't going to be able to stay in the UK with all my friends. I was going to have to go back to the US. 
needless to say, that was affecting my mental state. And still, in many ways, you can see the reverberations of that in my mental state even now. And so I was down. I was down on my luck. And once again, Callum Crosby came to my rescue and said, here, I want you to try something. Um, you know, I, I want you to uh, get your head, you know, above water, something to really take your mind off things and enjoy yourself. Uh, I had borrowed the PS4 from another friend of mine called Town Haven. Uh, and uh, I bought, I was like, hey, can I buy this Witcher 3 game that Callum keeps, you know, uh, badgering on about, uh, can I buy that and, uh, play your PS4? And he was like, yeah, sure, go ahead. Uh, so I bought it and, uh, I played Witcher the Rain and I really enjoyed it. Um, you know, now in hindsight, I see a lot of issues with the, the game, not only mechanic wise, uh, and, uh, in, in the legacy it left on the gaming industry, but also its inaccuracies. It's many inaccuracies with the books and at times incredibly out of character moments. But I, at the time, didn't know. All I saw was these characters that I grew to love. Geralt, Yennefer, Ciri. I loved them dearly and I loved their adventures and I needed to know more. Within a week, I had ordered The Last Wish. And then I devoured that in about two days, if not less. Uh, it was about a day and a half. I had schoolwork. <laughs> Otherwise, I would have devoured it in a full day. Uh, and then I ordered the next book, Sword of Destiny, and the next book, and the next book, and the next book. And by, you know, two months, I was done. I had read the entire saga from stem to stern, and I had loved it. Um... There is no way I can say, you know, anything about The Witcher on an objective level. It helped me through a very tough time. Um, and it spoke to me on many, many levels. Uh, thematically, character-wise, plot-wise, uh, socially and politically, it taught me things. It made me question my own stances and beliefs in my own world. It was Babylon 5 all over again, to give it another example, something you guys may be, you know, used to at this point. Babylon 5 did a very similar thing to me. Uh, those two years in university, hell, those three years in university were incredibly informative to who I became as a person now uh, and why I started this podcast in general. Um, and so the Witcher saga means a great deal to me, and I wanted to share that love with other people. Um, I started a retrospective with Claudia, uh, that we got, we, over the course of, uh, 2019, we got through all eight books. Uh, then in the beginning of 2020, we did, uh, Witcher 1, uh, the video game, Witcher 2, the video game, and, uh, then... Uh, the Netflix Witcher season one. There's been major hiatuses in those, you know, years. Uh, this being the longest, it's been almost two years at this point before the last installment. Not quite two years. We're still a couple months away from that. But it's about a, been a year and two thirds. 
Um, and she works in the gaming industry. She's an industry professional. She doesn't have a whole lot of time. Life issues get in the way for both of us. So we're eventually going to finish it. And you can find those retrospectives on the dailyfandom.org. And I have since changed this since, uh, the last episode. Uh, it is now also all, uh, at least, um, everything, from uh the last wish all the way to netflix season one so that includes witcher one not witcher two though uh is on witcher retrospective archive.wordpress.com um and you can find the analysis portions the q a portions there's a page that lays out the format of it things that changed over time uh various addendums made to the, the articles and whatnot witcher two uh, analysis is on thedefandom.org. There was a site switch over and the years in between the retrospectives that caused some of them to get lost to the, you know, void of the internet. So I figured, hey, let's revive it. Let's keep it going. Let's make sure that it's still here for everyone. Um, and I highly recommend you go out and uh, read those. It's interesting to get Claudia's perspective on the series as a newcomer. Me as a series veteran, but one who is still forming opinions on it. My opinions change and evolve, and I'm sure my opinions will change and evolve as I get through this podcast, much like it did with B5. That is the nature of literary analysis uh, and literary theory in general and opinions. <laughs> um, and so I tried to share this you know, wonderful story with other people that were important to me. And then the Netflix show came out. Netflix show I have issues with. It's good and bad all at the same time. I would say it's mediocre at best. Uh, it's got moments of brilliance where it adapts it perfectly and the moments where it adapts it miserably and misses the point entirely. Uh, and... I grow frustrated with it more and more as time goes on. And I need a break from that negativity. I need to talk about what I love about The Witcher again. Because most people's cultural touchstones are the games and now the Netflix series. It's not anything else. It's not the comics. It's not the 2002 Polish show called The Hexer. Uh, it's not the books. It's not anything. It's those two things. And my favorite part of the franchise is these eight books. Uh, these, you know, two, the first two being short stories, then the five, uh, you know, bits of the saga, uh, and then the one prequel, cycle book, as Sapkowski would say. Um, these are brilliant works of literature and some of the best books I've ever read. So, without further ado, enough of my rambling about how much The Witcher means to me, let's get into Weishman itself, and I call this Weishman usually, I'll, I'll call it Witcher for now on so as not to confuse you, but Weishman is uh, Witcher, the Witcher in uh, Polish, uh, and because it shares the name of the franchise, I tend to use The Witcher when I'm talking franchise as a whole, or The Witcher Saga when I'm talking about the books, uh, as a whole, and then I use the Weishman to refer to this particular short story so as the people will not get confused. But I will simplify it and just call it The Witcher. So this, this short story is very simple, very straightforward, but that's part of its charm. Um, is that there are many times I have seen, <laughs> believe me, I have seen clunky world building, and even authors who are great at world building, they just throw too much at you at one time, and it becomes overbearing. 
here, this was never planned to be a franchise. This was never planned to be a you know an eight book spanning saga. This was never planned to be what it is. It started out, you know, submitted as a short story on a whim. So there is so much world building that has to be done quickly. Um, what a lot of people don't understand about writing is writing longer pieces is actually far easier than writing short fiction. Uh, short fiction, you have to be tight. Every word counts. Every word has to matter. You can't go on tangents. You have to be going straight forward. Plot, character, everything, themes, subtext, it all has to be there on the page as quickly and efficiently as possible. Thus, one of the hardest things to learn uh, in creative writing is to write flash fiction, short stories, anything that is very short. Because not a lot of people understand that the skill to write short actually improves your ability to write long. I know that sounds counterproductive, but it's actually true. Uh, and so uh, here, you know, just that first scene with Geralt going to the inn and talking to the barkeep and the bartender sort of figuring out that he has a Rivian accent and us finding out that he wears, you know, his sword on his back and how that's a symbol of his order, the Order of the Witchers. All of this is fairly quick, efficient, subtle, uh, you know, organic world building that tells you Geralt's place in the world, how he's viewed, um, the way he acts, uh, everything in a very short couple of paragraphs. And that is incredibly efficient for someone who is not a writer by trade, who's someone with a finance degree who's an accountant. That is immaculate. That is incredible. Uh, just the pure skill required to do that so efficiently and so effectively, it's impressive. No wonder he got a book deal pretty much immediately, and no wonder his books became a cultural touchstone. Because they are so well written. Uh, even when they stumble, there are bits of brilliance, you know? And that is... Amazing. And, and I know I'm reading the English translation. I can't read Polish, so I can't read in the original. I understand that he plays a lot with wordplay and being poetic in his language. That probably doesn't translate the English, but it trans. But what is translated to English, I think, is well done. There are two translators for the series, Danuzia Stock for The Last Wish Collection and Blood of Elves and David French for literally everything else, uh, including the non-Witcher books that Andrzej Suskowski is getting translated. Uh, so there are bits lost in translation. There's some translation errors even. Uh, but what is in the English language is beautiful. And I love how dialogue-driven it is. And when it goes into pure prose, how quick and frenetic and often poetic it is at the same time. It, it's, it, it's a skill that took many, many years for masters of their crafts to, you know, even come close to this level. And to see someone do it so effortlessly, effortlessly that's talent. That's pure and utter talent. So, the Witcher short story, um, in its simplicity, being its strength, is also its downfall. That opening, as good as it is for world building, has an incredibly out-of-character moment for Geralt. 
Uh, we will get into this as time goes on. Geralt's morality will be explored. His personality will be explored. Hell, his entire code of neutrality, which he invented himself, as he'll admit, uh, you know, uh, will be broken and then reformed as the saga continues on. He is going to be a character that's going to be taken apart piece by piece and then reformed into something new. As with, you know, good storytelling, uh, good character growth. But here... He starts out as this almost monstrous thing. And I get that's the thematic point. Is Geralt a monster? And he kills these people in the bar for, you know, just being bigoted towards him. And Foltest gives a theory that he did it to get attention drawn to himself. And then there's this entire question of, did he cure Ada out of the kindness of his own heart? Or did he cure Ada to avoid the repercussions at the hands of King Foltest. And the issue there is that that's not Geralt, kind of. Geralt can come off as cold. He can come off as mean. He's not a good or a bad person. He, you know, flitters in between. He tries to remain neutral where he can, but he does have a good heart. He doesn't always know how to handle that goodness in his heart. He doesn't know how to go about it sometimes, but he tries to do the right thing. And him mindlessly killing is incredibly out of character for him, even if they were being bigoted. He only kills when it's necessary or he feels like he will bring peace and justice in any kind of way. No matter how twisted that might seem, that's how he does it. Um, and... Andrzej Sikowski has obviously admitted this uh, because in Season of Storms, which is a book we may cover in the future, I'm still trying to figure out exactly how I want to cover the books after I get done with the short stories. Um, is he try, it, the, That book ends with him getting this contract. Um, uh, and I, I'm going to try and keep spoilers to a, a minimum. Only small, insignificant things I'll let slip through. And anything the the tv show has touched i will see as fair game because most people have experienced the uh the tv show and maybe some of the stuff from the games i may talk about uh stuff that they reference from the books uh because that's also another cultural touchstone but i'm gonna try and keep spoilers to a minimum at all possible um you know he the, he tries in season of storms to make him put him at the lowest point in his life put him in a point where he is miserable and angry, uh, and he's put up the mask, the illusion, as it is explicitly stated, uh, in the season of storms of the Witcher, the mindless killing machine. And that's the way he's going about his life because he has nothing to live for anymore because everything has just kind of been taken away from him. And we'll get to that later, uh, you know, in future stories, uh, and how that comes back over and over and over again. He's, you know, folding back into that illusion, that comfort blanket, because it makes him feel safe when in actuality it does nothing of the kind. Uh, Geralt being a dual, uh, you know, the duality of man, <laughs> I suppose. Uh, we think we're protecting ourselves when we're really not. Uh, and so that, that's the way Andre, so, you know, sort of goes about explaining his behavior in this. I don't think it quite works. Understand it. I don't think even Geralt in full-blown, you know, I'm only a witcher, I don't care, I hate everything, you know, I'm only here to kill, I'm a tool to be used. When he's putting on that mask that is not him at all, it's just, it's 
you know, just like Londo, he wears a mask to, uh, to wander around with other people that I don't think he would kill them. Personal opinion, and I think it's incredibly other character and just doesn't fit. Uh, and, uh, you know, but early installment weirdness. We even got this in B5. Nothing's perfect. What I like about this story is, as I mentioned, with Geralt, you know, we're examining what takes to be a monster. Uh, did he do this out of the kindness of his own heart? Did he do it just to avoid repercussions? Did he kill those men because they were bigoted or that he needed to get his, or, you know, his name out there? Uh, is that we see this also in Foltest. We see a man, a very young man, uh, to that... Um, is basically has all these responsibilities is put upon to be the leader of this country and uh all he's really concerned about is his lover who happened to be his sister and he, uh, who's now dead died in childbirth and his now cursed daughter uh and we see him act differently in front of the other nobles we see him uh you know be callous towards um uh, towards Geralt and be a little bit flamboyant, but not quite. He's not a monarch stereotype. There's an easy stereotype to slip into when it comes to kings and queens and royalty. Um, because it's such an old, out-fashioned idea, uh, you, know, you know, monarchy in general, as well as the decadence they lived in, and we know they lived in back in the day, uh, they can be, you know, completely and utterly opulent and decadent not care at all about their subjects they can be you know um uh, flamboyant and annoying they can be fat and old and disgusting you can show kings in various different lights Foltest puts on the airs of the arrogant noble but when the chips are down he shows himself to be you know a person who cares in some sick, twisted way, he does. You know, he, he doesn't want to see his daughter suffer. He asked that directly to Geralt, and he doesn't want her harmed as much as possible. Yeah, he slept with his sister. Who knows if she returned the feelings? Who knows? But at the end of the day, he is not the person he's seen. A monster is not always clearly a monster. And who knows if King Fultist is a monster or not? Here, he's just a father looking out for his daughter, who happens to be cursed to be like some sort of creepy, monstrous vampire creature. Uh, but, you know, it is ultimately the story about a father seeking help. And I find that interesting. Uh, not only because, you know, in retrospect, the TV show takes the exact opposite route <laughs> with Foltest by making him fat and decadent, but also um, that... It's not the usual view of kings that we get in fiction. And a lot of Witcher is taking tropes and ideas, twisting them, subverting them, sometimes deconstructing them, and then reconstructing them again into a new whole. Um, and we even see that with Geralt himself, like your average fantasy protagonist, you know, young kid, farm boy type, or strapping young knight. You have an old, you know, withered man uh, who hates his job, hates his life, runs away from his problems, uh, and actively tries to not get involved in things. Uh, that's not the that's not the staple of an ordinary fantasy protagonist, is it? You know, um, 
and we see that throughout the the story as he navigates his way through you know the the politics of the situation he could easily be the mindless brute trope the killing machine that has no emotions but that's not what he is uh neither is he the man of few words he is a man who is incredibly intelligent can maneuver his way around nobles and politics and kings and queens uh and tells you know spits facts he will not sugarcoat it he doesn't kowtow to these people he he knows he's a tool he knows they view him as a tool and if he wasn't useful to them he would probably you know be treated to horrible bigotry just like he was see, like he, we saw in the tavern if he wasn't useful he would be a piece of meat and he knows that so he treats that as an advantage to go you need me so therefore i'm going to talk to you in a way that isn't exactly demeaning but isn't exactly the way you expected to be supplicated to uh, and we see that when, you know, he keeps referring to Ada as Astriga the entire time. And, uh, you know, I think it's Valorad, uh, you know, the nobles are just like, no, 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 no. It's Princess or Ada. It's, it, it, she's not Astriga. She may be Astriga by the curse, but you must refer to her as Princess so as not to offend the king. And then when he does that in front of Foltis, Foltis goes, no, she's Astriga. She will be my daughter when she is cured. She will be a princess when she is cured. Until then... She's a Striga. Uh, and so we're seeing these aspects of Geralt the character. And like I said, with the tavern situation, this feels like an outline of the character, not fully Geralt yet. That He will come to his form in later short stories. Matter of fact, I think he's in full form in the next short story. Um, and uh, me and Josh will talk about that because Josh will be joining us for that one. Uh, and... So, like, the Witcher Shred story is deceptively simple, but there's a lot going on underneath the surface to show the duality of this world, how miserable this world is. You know, the fact that everybody just assumes the Striga was caused by Foltis having an relationship with his sister. In actuality, it was a petty noble, you know, Ostrid, who was jealous of Foltis, and so doomed who he saw as his lover's daughter to a life of monstrous hell simply to get revenge. This is not a kind world. It's not a nice world. Hell, even when Geralt is preparing to fight the Striga, you know, we see the all the preparations he has to go through to make sure it's all perfect and timed correctly, and he has to drink the elixirs, how it changes him and how it looks ugly and it, in, how it enhances him but also makes him feel miserable. Uh, this is not a world in which nice things happen to nice people. This is not a fairy tale, uh, which is fitting because this is a, a very dark retelling of Sleeping Beauty. Uh, and the overall fight with Ada is really well done. Um, you know, uh, there's not a whole lot of dialogue in that situation, which is quite rare for Sipkowski because you'll notice as we go along, his style is incredibly dialogue driven. Uh, some of the best parts of the books are always when, you know, two people are just in a room chatting or whatever. Uh, that's the strength. His dialogue is really, really good. And as we see in the dialogue sequences, he tries to emulate uh, speech patterns, uh, not necessarily correctly. Like, there's no way all dialogue is contrived, as one of my creative writing teachers, Bruno McKenna, would say. 
There's no way to get dialogue to sound natural, but he does it in a way that where people will stop themselves in the middle of a sentence, you know, go off on a tangent, go on soliloquies, and then go, oh, wait, 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 wait. You know, uh, so to have the fight with the struggle be almost all entirely prose uh, and uh, it to be as fast, as kinetic as it is, but also incredibly tense and incredibly well-paced shows the strength of him as a writer. And while this is pure simplistic fantasy story, dark retelling of Sleeping Beauty, there's a lot going underneath the surface, and we see the talent of the author, and that will start coming into full bloom as the saga continues onwards. And I like how this story, you know, leads into the framing device. I'm going to be covering Voice of Reason on its own at the end of this book. I'm covering the the stories as they appear in The Last Wish, and the Voice of Reason will be covered at the very end. It is a framing device for this entire collection. It was not a short story released on its own. However, um, it has enough substance there that I need to talk about it separately, but I like how he uses this as the progenitor of the franchise. Uh, and he then draws upon that by making Geralt recover from his wound that he suffered at the hands of the Striga and Voice of Reason. And Voice of Reason is the connective tissue through all of these short stories that is building to something much larger and much bigger. <laughs> and we're going to get to that when we talk about Question of Price. Uh, <laughs> big saga implications there. Um, and so... This is just merely the beginning, but it is a very strong start. There's nothing special about this short story. It is very simplistic, but in that simplicity, it shows something more. And that something more uh, can, you know, is both indicative of where we're going as a story, but also the way his writing will change over time. Uh, and I like how... You know, this being leading into the the, the, the the framing device that this wasn't an easy job for Geralt. In many ways, this was a death sentence. You know, if he killed Ada, um, you know, it, it would fuck him over royally with either nobles or King Fultus. If, uh, you know, trying to cure her, trying to go actively going in his way to not kill her shows, you know, as the stories we heard from about the other witchers who tried to come there. Uh, that perhaps he is the more kinder person of his order, of the witchers, but also that it was an incredibly risky task, and he probably, the chances were he wasn't going to make it out alive. But he did. That's incredibly lucky. Uh, and so, uh, with that out of the way, I think this is a strong starting point. I understand why... Both TV shows, the Hexer and the uh, on the Netflix show, chose to put this later in the chronology. It's a good jumping on point for what a Witcher does, but it's not strong to show Geralt as a character just yet. It has a lot of implications of the character, but isn't the Geralt I know deep down. Uh, we're going to be getting to that soon. Hell, he's going to show a lot of his personality in the next, you know, the next short story, which we'll be covering next episode, A Grain of Truth. So um, I can understand the reasonings for moving it, and hell, um, I think I would move it too to a later point if I was making my own Witcher adaptation. Uh, I highly encourage you to uh, look up the Witcher 1 uh, opening cinematic, uh, on YouTube, or if you've played the game, you know it is a word-for-word -word, um, CGI rendition uh, 
of the battle with the Strika, like insanely, uh, word for word. The the attention, the details, insane. The Hexer does it pretty all right. I mean, it shows its age and shows its budget. The Strika is clearly a stuntman in a costume, uh, but it has its moments. Uh, and I like how they converge voice of reason in there. Uh, I think it was really well done. Uh, the Netflix version, I think, has good moments and bad moments. The, what they did with Foltus wasn't quite happy with, but uh, the the scene with Geralt in, on the bridge with Foltus was actually really good. The fight with the Striga was entirely different. Uh, however, it still showed... The, and conveyed the stress and the, the, the horribleness of that situation and how it was effectively destined to send him actively going out of his way to save her life and cure her rather than kill her. So each adaptation has its pros and cons. Um, and this short story isn't one that I don't mind a lot of changes to because it is the first, Gal's out of character at the beginning, and it's incredibly simple. So there's a lot of room to work with, but the framing of the kinetic action and the interesting dichotomy of Geralt, this tool, this monster hunter interacting with a noble who's also putting on a mask of who he is, is quite fascinating. There's a lot to lean in there. I will see you next time. We will be covering Grain of Truth with my friend Joshua Rapier. Uh, and uh, we will most likely be talking about the, the show a lot more as well because that's his, his main frame of reference. Uh, and like I said, spoilers are going to be kept at minimum. If it's covered by the, the show, it is f a fair game as far as I'm concerned. Uh, and worth noting, these are being recorded before season two came, came out. I know some of them, uh, not this one, but some of them are going to air after it came out on December 17th of 2021. As such, there may be things I have in spoiler sections that uh, is no longer spoilers. We shall see. Anyway, uh, thank you again, and I hope you continue uh, your journey with me through the Witcher Saga, and in particular, uh, the uh, Last Wish Collection. Until then, see you next time. Bye. <laughs>